If you love the History Extra podcast and want to help us keep bringing you brilliant episodes, then please share it with a friend or a fellow history fan who you think might enjoy it. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This Father's Day, the Home Depot has same-day delivery on the perfect gift to help Dad be everything he can be. Because your dad is more than just a dad. He's groundskeeper of the yard, the perfecter of the patio, and the cleaner of the clippings. Let the Home Depot help power Dad's doing with the convenience and gas-like power of Milwaukee cordless outdoor tools. Plus, get up to $150 off select Milwaukee tools. For everything Dad is, find the perfect gift at the Home Depot. How doers get more done. Order select and stock items by 4 p.m. subject to availability. With Uber Reserve, good things come to those who plan ahead. Family vacay? Reserve your ride as soon as you book your flights. To all the planners, now you can reserve your Uber ride up to 90 days in advance. See Uber app for details. During this difficult time, we want to make it as easy as possible for our readers to get their copy of BBC History Magazine or BBC History Revealed. So for the next few months, we'll deliver your favourite magazine direct to your door with no delivery charge. From today, you can save up to 70% off the shop price and subscribe from just £9.99. That's just £1.66 per issue. There's never been a better time to get your favourite history magazine delivered direct to your home. To take advantage of this unmissable offer, please visit www.buysubscriptions.com forward slash history extra and choose your magazine. Don't forget... All of our magazines are also available digitally on your mobile or tablet device. Visit buysubscriptions.com forward slash history extra for more information. We look forward to welcoming you. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. For today's episode, we have the next in our Everything You Want to Know series. This time, it's on the Viking Age. The expert is Professor Judith Jesh from the University of Nottingham, and asking the questions is our content director, David Musgrove. Welcome to the latest in our special Lockdown Everything You Want to Know series. Uh, I'm David Musgrove, content director on BBC History Magazine and HistoryExtra.com. So we've already covered the Norman Conquest, the Tudors, Roman Britain, Prehistoric Britain, D-Day and the Victorians in this series, and now we're turning our attention to the Viking Age. The format is the same as previous editions. We've asked you to send in questions on our social media channels, at History Extra on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram, and we've complemented them with a trawl of the most popular Google searches on the topics. And we've come up with a list of big and small questions that you want to know. Today's expert is Professor Judith Jesh. She's Professor of Viking Studies at the University of Nottingham, an expert on all things Viking, but with particular research interests in Old Norse language and literature, runology and interdisciplinary Viking studies. Uh, She also co-curates the Virtual Museum Vikings in the East Midlands, uh, which you will find at www.emidsvikings.ac.uk. So that's emidsvikings.ac.uk. 
She's written numerous books on the topic, uh, most recently The Viking Diaspora, published by Routledge, and Viking Poetry of Love and War, published by the British Museum Press. I met Judith a few years ago when she did a talk at one of our BBC History magazine's semi-regular study days, and she was quite brilliant then on the topic of Viking poetry, so hopefully we'll cover that a bit today. Uh, But before we start, Judith, welcome. Thank you for doing this. Thank you for inviting me. It's a great pleasure. No problem. Uh, how how are you doing with uh, with the lockdown? Is it uh, impacting on your on your research? Um, I am actually on research leave at the moment, so it forces me to stay in and do my research, which is great. Good, good stuff. Um, before we um, jump into the questions, can you tell me a bit more about the um, the virtual museum, the uh, emidsvikings.ac.uk? So uh, I've just been having a quick look around it. There's lots of good resources on it. Um, yeah. What's what's the idea? Well, a few years ago, um, we had a travelling exhibition organised by the British Museum and York Museum's Trust um, called Viking Life and Legend, uh, which came to Nottingham. Uh, this was in 2017 to 18. Uh, we also organised to go with that a museum, co- uh, an exhibition called Dane Law Saga, which uh, complemented the bigger exhibition by focusing on the Dane Law and the part of England where the Vikings actually uh, had the most impact. And we thought uh, everything was so successful at the time that we'd like to somehow preserve some of the events and those exhibitions. Um, so we made, uh, we had the idea of making a museum using many of the same artefacts that were in those exhibitions um, and complementing them with other materials such as place names, uh, rooms, uh, personal names, uh, and some fabulous uh, reproductions and designs made by um, Adam Parsons of Blue Axe Reproductions. So so there's a lot of material there, um, both actual material and things that you can actually use if you're into colouring. The designs are particularly nice for colouring in. Right. Okay. Um, okay. So we're going to jump into the questions now, um, uh, which, we, as I said, we've had from uh, uh, from our readers, our listeners, and from Google. So the, the first question, the, the ones we need to get into uh, for starters, is uh, the obvious ones: Where did the Vikings come from, and who were the Vikings? Those are the most common uh, searches on Google on the topic. Well, it's there's a reason why people need to know because uh, I, there's not a simple answer to that question. I think if you put 10 scholars and 10 members of the general public into a room and ask them all that question, you'd get at least 25 different answers. Um, so it, it, it's not simple. Uh, the word Viking, um, as we use it in English, is actually a borrowing from the modern Scandinavian languages. So it's only been used in English since the early 18th century. Um but it does go back to an old Norse word, uh, vikingur. Uh, the word vikingur referred to a person who did certain things, which could include uh, raiding or exploring or generally traveling um, and and settling elsewhere. Um, what uh, I think, though, it's important not to mix up the way the word was used a thousand years ago with the way we use it today. And today we use it in a, in a fairly general way to refer to uh, groups of people who came from what is now Scandinavia, so Norway, Denmark, and Sweden, and who their main characteristic was that they left Scandinavia and they went around the world, um, around most of the known world of the time, um, and had various kinds of impact in places as far apart as Newfoundland uh, and Baghdad um, and most of the places in between. Now, these countries were fairly 
sparsely populated then. Um, so for them to cover such a, a wide area, I don't think you can just, <laughs> you can't cover that with a small number of people. And I think what tended to happen is that uh, the Scandinavians encountered and, and got together with uh, the people they met along along the, these routes. Um, and so um, all kinds of people got involved in their activities, in their trading and their settlement. And we can, I think, with some justification, call all those people Vikings if, if they're doing Viking-type things in that period. Um, I prefer not to talk so much about Vikings, but rather about the Viking Age, uh, which is, a, again, uh, slightly contentious. People disagree about how long it really was, but I think if you go for sometime in the 8th century up until around the year 1100, then then that's what we think of as the Viking Age. And a lot of what happened in that period, um, the Vikings uh, were involved in. Okay. I don't know if that is is a very clear answer, um, but uh, as I say, it's quite a complex subject, even just defining Vikings in the Viking Age. No, I think it, I think it's very clear, and it just um, it just highlights the point that you were saying that there is some dispute about it. Um, so um, so that's absolutely fine. Right, the next question uh, is a couple of questions actually, which we're going to roll into one, and it's on a topic that you've written uh, written about quite a lot. It's about Viking women, and we have a, a question from Katie Hayes on our Instagram channel. Said, uh, "What were the lives of female Vikings like?" And then another question from Sarah Solnick on Facebook, who asked, "What was the role of women in Viking society?" So, so sort of conflating those two together is just to find out a bit about uh, the lives of, of women during the Viking uh, age, I suppose. Well, of course, I think that's an excellent question. <laughs> um, and it follows on from the previous one, because if you belong to the school of thought that Vikings were just large, hairy males who went around um, with swords and axes killing people, then obviously the women don't really come into it very much. Um, but as I've always said, even that kind of Viking at very least had a mother, um, possibly a sister or a wife or, or some daughters. Um, and actually, uh, if we don't restrict our view of the Vikings just to that cliche, then, and if we think about the people who moved around out of Scandinavia in that period, then obviously women were involved. A very uh, good example there is uh, the settlement of Iceland, which was uninhabited before the Vikings uh, settled there. And if they hadn't taken women with them, then Iceland wouldn't exist today. It's a very obvious point. So I, I think women were involved in most of, of what we think of as, as Viking activities. Um, even the, the great heathen army, as we call it, the uh, army that invaded England in, in the 860s, uh, recent research of places like Torxey and, and Repton has confirmed that even that band of people had uh, women with them. Um, so, and so basically, I think uh, women were uh, the Viking Age, like many earlier societies, was quite divided um, in terms of gender roles and 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 what people did, but. Uh, each household was really a kind of common enterprise. So even though men and women had different roles within the household, I think they they did a lot together, whether it was uh, at home on the farm in Scandinavia or uh, establishing new settlements um, in Scotland or Iceland or trading in the East. Um, 
So, yeah, women were involved in, in every aspect of the Viking Age, I would say. I suppose maybe what the questioners were asking was uh, to try and get a sense of how um, uh, how patriarchal Viking society was um, and, and how much agency women had within that. I don't know if you... Well, I know you've got views on that. So. <laughs> yeah, no. Um, well, yes, there's no doubt that it was a patriarchal society. Um, uh, as far as we can tell, um, women basically lived at home until they got married and very often uh, their marriage was arranged for them by their father or their brother or their uncle. Uh, they didn't have uh, that much choice. But I think once a woman was married, she was very much the mistress of the household. She was in charge of, of what went on indoors. And as I say, within the household, um, it was very much a partnership between uh, the mistress of the household and the master of, of the household. In a, um, and of course, I think... I think women had a lot of respect um, for the skills uh, that they had. Uh, one thing that I think is always worth remembering, as far as we can tell, uh, the sails for Viking ships were made by women. Um, so the sheep had to be sheared, the wool spun, um, the sails woven and sewn together from smaller bits. And that's women's work. So the Viking ships wouldn't have got anywhere uh, without the women actually making the sails for it. So that's what I mean about the the common enterprise. Yeah, and uh, the, the sails thing is a conversation I had with uh, Johanna, Catherine Friedrich's daughter, uh, when, when I talked to her about her book um, the other yeah. day. It's an absolutely yes. fascinating um, aspect of the story, isn't it? Um, and uh, before we move on from, from women, there was there was a question on Viking warrior women and this uh, this this um, observation about uh, the possible um, uh, grave of, of, a, of a Viking warrior in Burka. I'm not, we're not going to go into that because you have written about that for our website, historyextra.com. And, and as I, I mentioned, I did discuss that with uh, Johanna as well on that podcast. So if anybody wants to know about that, then go to the website, historyextra.com, search on Burka, and you will find some thoughts there. Right, let's move on to uh, food. Um, Emma Lois on Instagram uh, asks, what were Vikings' favourite foods? Did they eat certain foods for certain celebrations? And then there's a, a Google follow-up, which is, uh, what did they eat while travelling on their ships? Now, I don't know how far you're able to comment on those <laughs> things. I presume it's quite difficult to know, uh, quite a lot of that. Well, it's a very interesting topic that, that not much research has been done on. So, um, you know, I look forward. There are some colleagues in New York working on this, on this question at the moment. It follows on nicely from the previous question since I do think most uh, cooking of food, preparation of food was the responsibility of women. Um, although there is also evidence that um, men sometimes, if they were on a ship without any women to do the cooking, they'd have to do it themselves. I think uh, the short answer is uh, going back to the very first question, the Viking Age is a long period of time that covers a very wide geographical area and People, uh, until very recently across the world, people ate what was available and what was seasonal. Um, so in, uh, uh, I think the first thing to say, Vikings were probably not very vegetarian. <laughs> um, uh, that's difficult, uh, particularly in some parts of Scandinavia. They, they did eat a lot of fish, um, and we know that they introduced deep sea fishing um, to the British Isles, for example. Um, already from an early stage, they're exporting dried fish, so air-dried fish, which is very nutritional and very useful um, if you're going on a long voyage because it'll keep. 
Um, they did a lot of dairy farming, so they ate a lot of dairy products. Um, I think probably throughout quite a lot of history, most people ate what we would call porridge, <laughs> just grains um, cooked up, boiled up, with possibly a few herbs and things in them. Um, the other thing um, they're quite notorious for is eating horse meat. Um, and in fact, Icelanders still do eat. They ride their horses and then eat them afterwards. <laughs> um, and the when Christianity came along, um, this was disapproved of, and, it, and so th there was a period when they didn't eat. So I think they ate what was available, um, and I think they were quite good at uh, adapting to whatever. For example, when they went to Greenland, um, where there really is not much uh, to eat, they started eating seal. And I don't know if you've ever had seal soup Um I personally think it's the most disgusting thing I've ever eaten in my life. But uh, if you need to survive and you need to eat seal to survive, then you will do it. I've, uh, I've sadly never had the pleasure of seal soup. I have. Um, I did go to the uh, Lofoten Islands actually a couple oh, of years yeah. ago, up on the the north uh, north coast of uh, Norway, and you can see they still have the big uh, air drying racks for the fish there. Exactly. Um, I, I wasn't terribly tempted to try that either, to be honest. But, but um, it's nice, especially if you put a, a little knob of butter on on the, uh, the dried fish. They go very well together. Okay, all right. Well, I've missed out there. Maybe uh, I'll have to go back and uh, have another. Right. Okay. Next question. Um, so this is this is possibly a bit of a leading question, I guess, from Josh May on Facebook, who asks, "How progressive were the Vikings?" Um, so uh, I don't know if you've uh, if you've got any thoughts on that. Yeah, I, I can take that question in two different ways. <laughs> uh, one way is I think. Uh, People in the Viking Age were enterprising, they were innovative, they were interested in moving forward and making progress. So in that very literal sense of the word, I would say they were progressive. I think possibly the questioner wants to know if they had um, what we would consider to be progressive attitudes. Um, and uh, I'm personally very strongly against kind of judging people in the past by criteria that we have established in our own time. Um, so it comes back to what you were asking earlier about female agency and so on. I think women did have agency, but perhaps not the kind of agency that we have today. So, um, uh, but uh, the women do come into it because a, a lot of people have this view of, of Viking women as, as not oppressed in the way that women have been in, in some other historical periods. And, and maybe there, there's, a, there's a little bit of something in that. And of course, we shouldn't forget that Viking society included um, uh, something which we would consider to be entirely unprogressive slavery, which... Yes. Um, you know, would 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 rather rather against the the questioners of a line if, if if he is thinking that they were a progressive sort of people. Yes, but there's also quite a lot of evidence for uh, people freeing their slaves and and actually giving. Uh, for example, uh, in the settlement of Iceland, quite a lot of people are said to have taken uh, enslaved persons with them, and then once they arrived in Iceland, freed them and given them land uh, to enable them to set themselves up. Um, but yes, there was discrimination against enslaved persons and even freed slaves. Um, you know, it took a few generations before they were socially accepted. 
Yeah, but I suppose it, there is a certain sense of equality in their society at some levels with the democracy and the idea of the of the assemblies and the, the Icelandic thing assemblies, for instance. So there's something there, perhaps. I think so. I have a colleague, Keith Reuter, who who's working on 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 this at the moment, and he he's very clear that the Vikings had a strong concept of equity and that one you know they would try everything to sort things out and it's only when things couldn't be sorted out that they might resort to sort of inequitable means um, to get things okay uh right the next question is a great question um it's from uh chris hayward uh at gladiatus on twitter um who asks were there many major differences between the norwegian danish and swedish vikings so um asking to apply um sort of modern ethnographic labels i suppose to them but um but uh, not, they, they did apply to some extent not so much modern ethnographic labels as, as modern nations and borders Sorry, i mean yeah, of the, course, the, yeah. the, the na- uh, the the nations of Norway, Sweden, and Denmark actually came into being during the Viking Age, and uh, the idea of a single monarchy ruling over a, a single nation evolved I- in that period. Um, the thing that's important to remember is the simple vastness of Scandinavia. Um, uh, Elsa Rosdal, in her book about Vikings, pointed it out, and I've been repeating it ever since that the distance from the northern tip of Norway to the southern tip of Norway is the same as the distance from the southern tip of Norway to Rome. Um, it, it's, it's absolutely kind of massive. Uh, and, and the landscape varies enormously. Denmark is, gen, you know, the highest point in Denmark is 187 metres high. <laughs> Norway is mountains and fjords. Sweden is these forests and lakes. So it's extremely varied. So is there anything that unites these people um, and I would say what unites them uh, is partly a common language, um, uh, which they called the Danish tongue, strangely enough, um, and uh, a, to, to a large extent a common culture as well, as, as it's held together by language. So there's both variety and diversity. Um, in terms of the Viking expansion, um, almost every book you read about the Vikings will have a little map showing um, arrows coming out of these three countries, you know, the, with the Swedes going east and the Danes coming west and, and the Norwegians heading off to Iceland and Greenland. Uh, it's a bit more complicated than that because I think there was a lot of mobility within Scandinavia and you could find Swedes uh, in Iceland and uh, Norwegians in the east just as much. Okay. Good stuff. Um, yeah, I can. On that same Lofoten trip, I mentioned I, I uh, we then went across to the top of Sweden and drove mm-hmm. down through Sweden. I can attest it is a very long way, um, and it was it was mostly trees all the way yes. down. But uh, <laughs> um, but an interesting journey in all the west. Um, right. Uh, next question uh, from uh, Claire uh, Kaim, I think, on Facebook. How did they get on with the local people once they decided to settle somewhere? So that's that's quite a big question, which I'm sure there's lots of lots of variables in play on that one. Well, uh, yes, uh, there are. There is variety, of course. So if we look at England, um, I think uh, what uh, once the the question uh, specifically once they decided to settle. So we'll leave out the the kind of raiding and the killing bit, (laughs) Um, and uh, maybe the second phase, if you like, when people and obviously. Uh, they settled down. Um, they very soon, I think, probably um, 
married local people um, and formed families with them. Um, one of the most important ways uh, local people would influence uh, the incoming Scandinavians was in, in religion, because in England, England was a Christian country, the incoming Scandinavians were not Christian, um, and Christians, uh, you know, it's the commandment, thou shall have no God but me. <laughs> Christians are generally uh, at that time very keen to convert other people uh, to Christianity. So um, uh, one of the things that happened is very soon, I think they adopted Christianity, although it's quite interesting in some parts of England, you can see a very Scandinavian form of Christianity evolving uh, as as the Vikings joined in. They obviously uh traded with the locals. Um, what we don't know too much about is exact uh, the exact mixture of population. I mean, did the Vikings live in their own villages and, and interact with the next village where the English might have been living, or did they live cheek by jowl in the same village, or did they uh, just have a Viking overlord on a large estate where most of the people living on the estate or in the village might not have been um, Scandinavian. I think um, their influence on the English language suggests that there was a lot of interaction on a personal level. Um, and also, But that also comes inevitably uh, with immigrants after the first generation or two, then people start speaking the local language. It's, you can see that with any immigrant group in history, the language doesn't really last more than uh, a few generations. Are, are genetic studies shedding much light on that last question? Um, yes and no. <laughs> um, the problem with the genetic studies is, uh, well, there's two kinds. Uh, there's the, the study of modern populations um, and Basically, uh, as I think Adam Rutherford has pointed out, <laughs> um, everyone who lived in the year 1000 is an ancestor of everyone in Europe today. Um, uh, I don't, I can't quite get my head around that, but I, I do. And you know, there's been a lot of movement, and uh, if if you go back more than a few generations, obviously, uh, your ancestors interact with each other you don't like have two and then four and then eight and then 16 and then 32 ancestors because there'll be far more people than actually existed uh, a thousand years ago so um i'm not terrible uh, the genetic studies can show certain trends i mean you can see differences in different parts of the country so in northwest england or in orkney or the hebrides you can see there's a higher proportion of people who have uh, similar genetics to people in Norway, for instance. Um, What is happening much more now um, is working on ancient DNA, i.e. extracting DNA from uh, skeletons. Um, And obviously, we don't have that many skeletons of people from a thousand years ago, but the geneticists assure me that they're, they're getting around these problems and they can actually... Uh, I went to a seminar only a few weeks ago, at, uh, which uh, Tom Booth said that within 10 years, he'd, they'd be able to tell us what proportion of the population uh, a thousand years ago came from Scandinavia, for example. 
Okay. So uh, watch this space is yeah, all I can yeah. say. <laughs> okay, yeah. Well, science will 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 uh, charge on, I'm sure. Okay, uh, we've got a, a few questions um, specifically on on Britain and the occupation or the uh, impact of uh, Vikings uh, in these lands. Uh, so the first one is from Paul Orton on Facebook. Uh, what were the long lasting effects of the Viking occupations on the English language? And he wants quite specifically by regions of the Dane law. So we might not be able to go into the uh, into quite the level of detail. Pulls after, but um, gives gives a sense of, of yeah. Of the, um, uh, the well, of course, you'd have to. Uh, nobody's asked me to define the Dane law. Thank you. <laughs> um, that's a complication in itself. But it, I mean, what you can see is different levels of Scandinavian Scandinavian influence on uh, different English dialects in in different parts of England. But what I would say is most of what we can uh, still identify as Scandinavian words in the English language today are because uh, the most of these dialect words are not very well known outside their region or indeed even within their region nowadays because people move about so much. But there's still plenty of evidence for uh, Scandinavian words in English which have been adopted into the English language and then just move around the country. So everyone will say egg um, rather than a for what you have for your breakfast. Um, that's a Scandinavian word. Everyone will look out the window. That's a Scandinavian word. Everyone has legs. That's a Scandinavian word. Um, there's uh, there's a wonderful project called the Gersum Project. Uh, Gersum itself is a word that no longer exists in English, but it was borrowed into Old English from uh, Old Norse. It means a treasure. Um, so we have lots of these Viking treasures in the English language, and they're they're charting all these borrowings um and and there's quite a subs even really very basic words in the language like uh the pronoun they um uh, originally a plural pronoun nowadays often used with a singular meaning so they there and them uh so words so i always tell my students every time they open their mouth practically they are <laughs> speaking old norse um and so the influence is quite considerable which i think goes back to what i was saying earlier that there's probably quite a substantial uh, migration of people for to, for them to have that much linguistic influence. Yeah. I, I mentioned to you on uh, when we were talking on email that uh, one of my little lockdown projects is to try and get my head around uh, Old Norse, try and understand the basics of it, which obviously I'm not going to be able to do. But um, uh, reading the book and looking at the language, there are many words which are which are clearly uh, loan words that have come from from that language into English. So um, it doesn't take too long to find them when you're when you're looking. No, at the but old. it's also fun to see how how they develop, because uh, one of my favourite examples is the word the words shirt and skirt, um, which the two languages are closely related. So originally there was just one word which referred to some kind of garment. And what English has done is it's used the English word shirt for one particular kind of garment and it's used the other, the Old Norse word skirt for a different kind of garment. It's all good fun, isn't it? It's all good fun. Um, uh, right, we've got a, a question from uh, Paul Stewarty on Twitter, um, uh, and I'm slightly paraphrasing his question because uh, his original question was uh, was was bemoaning the fact that we'd ignored Scotland in a feature that we've uh, run uh, on on the Vikings in the magazine. I'm not entirely sure what, which feature he's referring to, but anyway, he's basically asking how prominent was their presence in Scotland. And apologies, Paul, uh, for missing out uh, in in that feature. Well, I'm happy to reassure Paul that very prominent, <laughs> although the, the same applies as in almost all of my answers. It's a bit more complicated because Scotland didn't really exist in the way it does today. 
um, its early history is a little bit obscure than the Vikings came along. And uh, I think it's important to remind people, uh, the people up there don't need reminding, but people in the rest of the UK might need reminding that uh, once uh, Vikings had settled in uh the Northern and Western Isles and those parts of mainland Scotland adjacent to the Isles, the Western Isles or the Hebrides remained uh, Scandinavian, so ruled by the Norwegian king until uh, the 1260s, and Orkney and Shetland remained Scandinavian until the middle of the 15th century. Um, so the <laughs> the influence is is much more palpable and much more extensive, actually, than in any other part of Britain and Ireland. So, yeah, the Vikings have, and uh, people in Orkney and Shetland were speaking Norn, some sort of form of Old Norse. Very difficult to say exactly, I mean, many words still survive in, in their dialect, but they were certainly speaking some form of Old Norse well into uh, that sort of time, maybe the 16th, 17th century. And of course, there's lots of um, uh, fascinating remains in Scotland that that, uh, that refer to the Vikings. I think you tweeted a picture of uh, Mace Howe the other day, the, uh, uh, the 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 um, the prehistoric site with the Viking uh, runes inside it on Orkney. So, so you know that's just one example. Well, it, of, of well that's it. I mean, I, I have to correct you slightly. Everyone thinks they're Viking runes. They're 12th century runes, oh, okay. even though the word Viking does appear in them. So even in the 12th century, people still thought of themselves as, as Vikings in some sense. Well, that's very interesting. Oh, I, I, st- I stand corrected. So um, so who 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 made those uh, markings then? What, what do we know about that? Yeah, we, we know quite a lot about them. Um, the Earl of Orkney, who was called the Rögnvalder, who had an, uh, an Orcadian mother and a Norwegian father, um, went on uh, a pilgrimage to, uh, or a crusade, or a Viking raid, or an expedition, or a, a lad's uh, journey out, <laughs> whatever you want to call it, to the Holy Land. Um, and on when uh, there was a mixed group of Norwegians, Orcadians, and Icelanders, and when they came back to Orkney from uh, their adventures, uh, they I think they had parties in there. <laughs> And possibly a little bit too much to drink, and then they they scrawled their names all over the inside of this uh, ancient monument, and so we can pinpoint that to the 1150s, um, which is because we know from other sources that's uh, when, and because it refers to people who've been to Jerusalem, the graffiti say Jerusalem travelers were in here, and we know that that journey to Jerusalem took place in the 1150s. <laughs> Still to come on the History Extra podcast. I personally think that many aspects of what we think of as the Viking Age continued. They crossed over the divide brought about by the coming of Christianity. And it's really only with the Protestant Reformation that um, life changed really quite uh, drastically in, in many Viking parts of the world. Next question is uh, still in, in Britain. Uh, when and how extensive was Danish occupation on York uh, before they abandoned the city as, as part of the harrying of the North? So getting quite specific, how English versus Viking uh, slash Danish was York prior to 1069 is the question. So um, that's from Laurel A. Rockefeller uh, on Twitter. Okay. Um, well, York, um, as I think everyone knows, is an ancient city. It goes back to the Romans, at least. Um, and there was a settlement there even before the Romans. Um, 
I think it was a little bit in the doldrums at the beginning of the Viking Age. Um, there's not much evidence for what was going on there. Then along came the Vikings and settled there and uh, practiced trade and craft of various kinds. So uh, certainly their influence is, again, palpable. You can find many Scandinavian-type objects. Um, they revitalized the city the uh, the habit in York, uh, but also in, in other cities in the Midlands and the North of using the word gate to mean street is another example of Old Norse influence on the language. So yes, I'd say it was pretty, <laughs> pretty Viking. Um, but then cities have this way of attracting people from all over the place. And cities are generally really quite cosmopolitan. And I think York was also pretty cosmopolitan. So, um, you know, uh, I think the Viking, I think it's fair to say the Vikings rejuvenated York and set their stamp on it. But uh, as a city, it was quite cosmopolitan. Okay. Uh, right. We are, we're leaving Britain for a second and, and going a bit more global. And obviously that's one of the, one of the, the themes in, in Viking studies is to understand that certainly from the British perspective, that it's not just about them coming over here and uh, raiding Lindisfarne and, uh, and hanging around. There's a lot more to the story than that. So this question is, why don't they get more credit for discovering North America? Uh, this is from Leslie Brown on Facebook, who, um, who wonders whether it's something to do with the American education system, but, uh, but, uh, I'm sure it's, it's, it's bigger than that. Well, it's it's interesting because I've also I'm also partially a product of the American education system, and we were told about Christopher Columbus and nothing about the Vikings. So, <laughs> um, I think one of the reasons they don't get more credit is actually um, the dominance of the United States in this discussion. And although many people would like to think otherwise, there's actually precious little, or I would almost say none evidence that uh, Scandinavians reached what is now the United States of America. When they reached North America, they there's very good evidence uh, for them reaching um, Newfoundland, Labrador, uh, that part of northeastern Canada. Um, but anything further south is largely speculation or fake evidence. Okay, but that, that leads in very nicely to the next question from uh, Muna Ahmed on Facebook, who who asked why did they not settle in North America? Well, the, Scandin the people of Scandinavian origin, or Vikings, if you like, who went to uh, North America largely came from Greenland. So there was a, a settlement in Greenland, which in it, itself had uh, the people there had come from Iceland. So it's a kind of stepping stone across uh, the North Atlantic. And the further you go... Uh, if you're still maintaining uh, uh, the culture of home, um, then you get further and further away from home uh, if, if you see home as Norway or Iceland. Um, and, and of course, fewer and fewer people. I mean, Greenland, uh, again, it's disputed, but I've seen suggestions that at its height, Greenland didn't actually have more than 2,000 people of Viking origin living there. So if a few of them go off to, you know... Uh, there's not enough people really uh, for them to settle. And probably I think it was, I mean, it was useful. Uh, we do have evidence that they kept going to um, Labrador for timber into the 14th century, because if you live in Greenland or Iceland, there's not many trees. So it's quite a handy place to go if you need big trees. So they, they went back and forth, but I think it was just just too far away to live life the way they wanted to live it. 
Okay. It's, uh, I imagine it's a bit more than just going back and forth between Greenland and, uh, and yeah. uh, North America. That's, that's a, it's a bit of a trek, I would uh, It is. <laughs> it is. But it, it's not that bad because if you sail up the Greenland coast and then down uh, the Canadian coast, then you're following the coast much of the way. Um, and uh, that, that's, that's the easiest form of navigation. Sure. Okay. A um, uh, question from uh, Peter Grunet on Twitter, um, who asks, I want to know more about Basil II and the uh, Varangian God. I'm never sure how you pronounce that. Is it Varangian or Varangian? I'm not sure. I say, um, but I know- I say Varangian, but okay. you know, whatever. Okay. <laughs> um, I know it's not um, it's not, not uh, quite your, your specialist area, but um, do, do, you, uh, do you have a, anything well, you can tell us about that? It's Yeah, it's, it's a very interesting. Um, it, it, it's the kind of extension of uh, what I mentioned earlier, mainly Swedes uh, heading east down through uh, down along the Russian rivers and and one of their routes uh, brought uh, so they were basically trading all the way um, and then eventually reached the Black Sea and then from there um, to Constantinople as it was known then or Istanbul or Byzantium if you like and with Byzantium at this period was uh, very wealthy and important um, and Basil II, who, who ruled um, in the late tenth uh, and early eleventh century, was a great one for going on military expeditions all around the place. So he needed lots of soldiers, and uh, all these handy young men from northern Europe uh, could go and earn a living uh, by soldiering for him. So uh, that's and he. Uh, apparently he formed this Varangian guard um, as, as his particular personal bodyguard. Um, and it, I think it played quite a large part in the lives of many Scandinavians. There's quite a few characters in the Icelandic sagas are said to have gone to what they called Miklagarður, which means the big town, <laughs> um, and, and for a time. So it's, it's something that young men did, um, and one of the most famous ones, and he's even recorded in Byzantine sources and not just uh, in Scandinavian sources, is Harold the Hard Ruler, uh, the King of Norway, his later King of Norway, who died at Stamford Bridge in 1066 before the other more famous Battle of 1066. And he spent his youth um, as a captain in the Ranging Guard and uh, was apparently very, and very successful. And there's quite a lot of poetry about his raiding in Sicily and, and things like that as well. Okay. Um, it's a link to that sort of question, I suppose, in the same sort of area. This is from uh, Rayhan Khan on Twitter, who uh, who would love to know more about the Volga Vikings and their trade with the Arabs, and uh, particularly interested in the extent of primary sources about the the Vikings in Arabic. And there's a there's, there's one chap who seems to get quoted a lot in in, in Viking <laughs> books nowadays. Who's um, who who I forget um, I forget his name. Um, you you'll know it. But um, uh, there's there's definitely some evidence there, isn't there? There's a lot of evidence. You're thinking of Ibn Fadlan, and exactly, you yes. might remember him. From from the 13th Warrior film. <laughs> um, but uh, he's not the only one. Um, I'm going to come back to him in a second. But the, the point is that there, there's a huge amount of literature in Arabic um, about the encounters uh, that people um, in those regions had with people from the north, who they called Arus, the Rus, um, which, by the way, gives its name to Russia. <laughs> um, and these were largely... Scandinavians, or at least of Scandinavian origin, but of course it's a big continent and probably some of them were well established there. Um, so the uh, the uh, 
the two main routes uh, were the Dnieper, which I mentioned earlier, which led to the Black Sea and, and Istanbul, um, and then the Volga, uh, which heads more eastwards. And um, Ibn, uh, Ibn Fadlan in particular, that he was an ambassador from the Caliph of Baghdad uh, to these people called the Bulgars who lived on the Volga, and he encountered a group of Rus. Um, and he, he's important because he was an eyewitness. He actually traveled in those regions, met these people. Um, he tells us that he spoke to them through an interpreter. So that's an interesting question. What yeah, got lost? In, <laughs> got, <laughs> what, yeah, <laughs> somebody who could speak both Old Norse and Arabic. Um, and a question of what got lost in the, con, in the, in the translation. And he describes a, a funeral of one of their chieftains, which is very well known. Uh, and most books about the Vikings mention it. But but the original question, I think, is, is a more interesting one. There are very large numbers of Arabic sources. Um, in this period, uh, the writers in Arabic were very interested in geography, and they wrote quite a lot of geographical treatises, uh, and quite a lot of them include descriptions of these uh, strange people in, in the north. Um, and not all of them are eyewitness accounts, and there's a certain amount of just the same thing being copied over and over again. But it's a very, very interesting um, area of research, and there's very few scholars. I can really only think of one who know Old Norse and Arabic equally well to study these sources, because uh, you do need to understand both cultures, I think, to really understand these sources. Uh, a lot more research is being done by archaeologists, because also the other uh very um, good evidence for connections with the Arabic world is the amount of silver uh, that came to Scandinavia and, well, to the whole of Northern Europe through Viking activities and Viking connections uh, with that part of the world. And the these are called dirhams, and uh, the coins are extremely useful because uh, they they are actually dated, which is unusual for coins at that time. So uh, we can get a rough idea of what's happening when because of these dates. Mm -hmm. Now, the Vikings didn't originally have a, a coin economy, um, so they valued that they generally melted the silver down, and um, but enough of the coins survive uh, not having been melted down uh, to give us a good idea of how important that trade, that trade route to the east was. Hmm. So who's that scholar who's got mastery of uh, of He's old called uh, Thorir Jonsson Reindal. He's an Icelander. Okay, because presumably that um, that is an area where a lot of researchers will be looking to focus their attention. Then, um, I mean, is there interest for on the Arabic side? Are there are there Arabic scholars who are looking to sort of become uh, Viking? Yes, there quite probably are. I haven't actually managed to meet any yet, um, and I, I think I think it's. I mean, even on a smaller scale, you have a similar problem um, studying uh, Vikings in, in Ireland and Scotland where you don't have that many who, people who can read the uh, Celtic languages, the Gaelic sources and the Old Norse sources. They are hard languages, as you're discovering. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and um, you really do need... Uh, and, of course, uh, studying Vikings in the East, you need other languages besides Arabic uh, uh, as well. You need old high, uh, old church Slavonic and so on and so forth. So, um, And people don't seem to like learning languages anymore. I don't know what their problem is. <laughs> well, it's uh, certainly an issue in a, in a lot of um, aspects of history, isn't it? But, um, but perhaps uh, particularly here, if, uh, if there's research to be done. Um, 
Okay, should we should we jump on uh, slightly closer to home? Uh, how close did Normandy uh, remain to Viking Scandinavia and Viking outposts like the Kingdom of Dublin in the 11th and 12th centuries, socially, culturally, and politically speaking? And that is from someone called Montreal St on Twitter. Yeah, Nor- Normandy is interesting. Um, uh, it, it's also a relatively under-researched area, and I think. A lot of scholars in France assume that, apart from giving their name to Normandy, which is named after the Northmen, uh, the Vikings didn't have that much influence. But I think in in certain... Nevertheless, <laughs> I think uh, there's probably more there. You, uh, there's evidence from place names, particularly um, on, in the Cotentin Peninsula in, in Normandy. And, and of course, um, they ruled uh, Normandy um, under the kings. So um, the connection is there. I think probably the settlement wasn't that widespread. And uh, but so I, I, I can only go a little bit into the 11th century based on what I know at any rate. I do know that uh, King Olaf of Norway, later saint, the first Scandinavian saint, spent his youth uh, traveling around the European continent and, and he did pass through Rouen. Um, and one of his... Um, there's a poem um, by uh, his court poet Sigvater, which mentions the, the fact that the mentions Rouen. So uh, probably at that time, there was still enough of an interest in meeting Scandinavians and listening to Scandinavian poetry in Rouen. Uh, this would be in the 1010s, this sort of very early 11th century. Um, and then I suppose um, what happened, as in happened in England as well, that you know the contacts are maintained, but it's not... It's not that kind of explosive, um, extensive uh, impact that you get with a period of raiding and settlement. That people just have some kind of connection, but it's it's difficult to trace. But I'm told by colleagues in France that there's a huge um, archives of documents that haven't been studied fully. So uh, that's another research project that uh, someone needs to get stuck into. Ah, okay. Well, but they'll be in medieval Latin, presumably. So uh, yes. there'll be a few more people who could cope with those. Exactly. <laughs> okay. Well, we're, we're finding where all the all the areas that people need to research. Um, okay. Um, uh, sh- should we jump on to the, to the legacy? Um, uh, and a, just a, a really easy question to ask, ask from Google. What happened to the Vikings? <laughs> uh, they never went away. <laughs> um yeah, we see, as I said earlier, I prefer talking about the Viking Age and then you don't have to answer questions like what happened to the, <laughs> to the Vikings. And of course, it depends on on the very first question, how you define Vikings. So obviously, uh, some of them went home. Some of them stayed in new places and uh, assimilated to local cultures Um and then produced a kind of hybrid culture, which uh, is, I think, what they did in England and Scotland and Ireland and places like that. Uh, then I mentioned Iceland, um, which uh, they established. There was nobody living there before, except possibly a few monks who wouldn't have uh, produced uh, future generations. Um, and in, in Greenland, uh, we do know that the uh, Viking colony there died out in the 15th century at some point or not later than 1500. We don't know why because um, uh, 
Did they all leave because the climate was worsening or did they just die out because there were so few of them or did they go? We don't know. But that came to an end and it's only in in more modern times that Greenland once again um, was colonized by the Danes. So it's different everywhere, really. Um, But in most of the places they went to, you can still see evidence of, of their impact or and um, in many cases, they became a part of the rich cultural tapestry of whatever country uh, they settled in. But as you said at, at the start, the sort of the, the historical terminology would have the Viking Age petering out towards the end of the 11th century. Yeah. Um, well, of course, the, there was King Knut, who was uh, the Danish king of not just England, but of uh, Norway and Denmark as well. Um, he died in 1035. I'm never very good on dates. <laughs> His son, Hardy Canute, died in 1042. So some people would end the Viking Age in England in 1042. But then raiding activity continued well into in, in different parts of Britain and Ireland into the 12th century. Uh, as I said earlier, uh, Orkney and Shetland remained a part of Scandinavia. I personally um, think that many aspects of what we think of as the Viking Age continued. Um, They crossed over the divide brought about by the coming of Christianity, and it's really only with the Protestant Reformation that um, life changed (laughs) really quite uh, drastically in in many Viking parts of the world. Okay, so we're taking it up to the 16th century now instead. Well, well, 1500. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Okay. Okay, uh, so so uh, this is this is connected. Um, why do the Vikings, in in quotes, continue to dominate the Western imagination um, uh, even more so than say the Greeks or Romans? Asked the questioner, who 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 comments that they arguably left a larger and more tangible footprint, and that's Hyog Sila on Twitter. So, um, do you, do you agree with with that comment? Um, well, I no. <laughs> I mean. Uh, it depends what you mean by the Western imagination. Um, if you're talking about popular culture in 2020, then uh, the questioner um, is correct. <laughs> um, but if you're talking a bit more broadly about Western culture, then there are certainly, in both in my university and other universities, many more people teaching the Greeks and Romans than the Vikings. Thank you very much. <laughs> um, and our... Western European culture has, of course, completely been dominated by the legacy of of the Greeks and the Romans. Now, the Greeks, as far as I know, didn't really make it to Northern Europe. Uh, The Romans got as far as Scotland. (laughs) Um, So if you're talking about impact, do you mean impact of those cultures on the ground? Or do you just mean the intellectual legacy of Greeks and Romans. And I still think the intellectual legacy of Greeks and Romans is still much greater in in Western civilization. However, two things. Um, One is that there came a point where people in Northern Europe got fed up with the Greeks and Romans and, and started getting interested in their own Northern European history, and that's when the Anglo-Saxons, Celts, and Vikings were all discovered more or less at the same time in about the 16th century. Um, But the real fascination with the Vikings is very largely, certainly in Britain, uh, 
it started earlier in Scandinavia, actually, but in Britain, it's very much uh, a Victorian thing, 19th century. Um, and to some extent, we're still living through that romanticization of the Vikings that the Victorians started. Um, but then um, in 2020, I would blame popular culture, <laughs> um, starting with the Marvel comics, going through um, video games. I know very little about video games, but I know enough to know that an awful lot of them are heavily influenced by really the knowledge that the Victorians gave us about uh, the Viking Age. And then then there's the drama series like The Vikings on History Channel and Last Kingdom. And these have now, uh, uh, going back to my very first question, I think when most people think of Vikings, I'm pretty sure they're thinking of History Channel's Vikings first and foremost before anything else. Um, so I don't really agree with the question, but at the same time, there is an interesting history to uh, people's discovery of the Viking Age and Vikings and, and Northern European civilization, if you like, because after all, um, people in the North also composed literature and poetry and, and had philosophical thoughts, <laughs> and it wasn't just a Greek and Roman phenomenon. Yeah. And I mean, you're absolutely right in terms of, of popular understanding of Vikings, uh, you know, as having gone through and looked for the Google searches about Vikings, they are, the, the most of them are uh, related to the uh, to the TV series. Um, so I, I, I wonder whether people struggle to dissociate Vikings from Scandinavia uh, today in terms of, you know, there's there's always, there's been this thing in Britain, certainly of a sort of a, a certain love affair with, uh, with, with, with Hugger and things like that in Denmark and, and you know, uh, and, and all the Scandinois. No, fiction, things uh, yeah, like that. No. Whether that's whether that's driving a certain interest definitely, in definitely. But that's only within the last ten or fifteen years. I mean, I'm, I've been around long enough to remember a time when <laughs> nobody knew or cared about Scandinavia. Although, you know, again, that goes up and down in history. Obviously, in the war, the Norwegian government was based in London, and the the Shetland bus, and so there are, you know, it. In some ways, uh, Scandinavia are practically our closest neighbours, apart from France. Um, and uh, there's always been connections there, and uh, people's awareness of those connections goes up and down, and they are quite high at the moment. And to come back to your, your Scottish questioner, <laughs> um, and one of the things that the Scottish independence movement has been very interested in is finding closer links uh, with Scandinavia because of their Scandinavian heritage uh, rather than you know being ruled from from London, if you like. Okay, a couple more quick ones. Uh, I don't know how quickly you can clear this up, but um, CJ at Doctor Who 1970 on Twitter asks, where did the myth about the Viking horned helmets come from? Um, I can clear that up quickly. I just need to refer to my notes. In uh, 1875, uh, Richard Wagner's costume designer, Professor Carl Emil Doppler, uh, for the first full production of Wagner's Ring at Bayreuth in 1876, came up. Uh, with a helmet with cow horns on it for that production. Um, there's a kind of history to that. It's really quite long and complicated, but I think you can say the Viking horned helmet was born in 1875. Okay. And and we are still in agreement that you shouldn't have a Viking horned helmet if you're depicting a, a, a Viking today. It's, uh, it's an anachronism. Uh, it's a fun anachronism. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Okay, last one, and I know this. This is uh, this is from someone who knows you. Um, uh, uh, actually, what's his name? S. S. Lewis Simpson. Who, Shannon Lewis Simpson. Shannon yeah. Lewis Simpson on Twitter, who asks, um, "Who would you, uh, Judith Jess, uh, wish to compose uh, your?" And I'm going to mispronounce this. Drapa. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. Okay. And you're going to have to tell us what a, a drapa is. Yes. Well, uh, I think Shannon possibly knows the answer to the question. But anyway, a drapa is a long praise poem. So before they started writing, they only started writing with the advent of Christianity and written culture. They had a very vibrant oral culture. And one of the things they did is compose these very long and very complicated and very difficult poems in praise of kings and chieftains. Um and uh, sometimes while they were still alive. So you'd stand up and, you know, you imagine uh, the chieftain having come back from a raid and all his men in, in the hall all drinking away and you had to say nice things about the chieftain and then he would pay you afterwards. It was a very lucrative profession. Um, so that's what a, a draupa is, basically. Um, and, of course, uh, this is all very masculine, um, but there is one poet who actually composed a draupa about a queen, um, and she was called Austrider. She was the wife of St. Olaf, who I've mentioned already. Um, and St. Olaf uh, was martyred in a battle in the year 1030. Uh, he left behind an illegitimate son, so not her son. Um, and But everyone was very keen uh, to uh, get him back onto the throne of Norway after um, uh, the, his father's enemies had kind of killed his father. And she uh, used, uh, she was a Swedish princess. She used her, pulled strings in Sweden and got in some Swedes um, and put her stepson back on the throne of Norway. And for this um, really quite daring political in, uh, intervention, uh, an Icelandic poet called Sigvater composed some poems uh, about her that survive. Um, so it's the only one of this genre, it's a very extensive genre of poetry, which is uh, composed in praise of a woman. So I thought Sigvater was probably the guy to compose my draupa. <laughs> brilliant, brilliant. Okay, well, thank you for that. That's gone through all the questions we have. Mm -hmm. I suppose before we finish, um, the, the, we, we call this series the Everything You Want to Know About uh, series. Are there any questions you were surprised that um, that we didn't have? Are there questions that you're regularly asked when you deliver public lectures or anything like that that uh, that, um, that normally crop up? Um, well, the genetics one is an interesting one. You brought that up, but I'm surprised that none of the, the questioners did. Um, and, yeah, uh, nobody's mentioned runes. <laughs> runes are what I'm particularly interested in, and uh, that's another aspect of Viking studies that has been heavily taken over in some ways by popular culture and it would have been interesting to talk about uh, runes and runic inscriptions as they were used in the viking age but sure. uh, maybe another time <laughs> yeah i think we can we can definitely do another podcast entirely on runes i would imagine there's uh, i'm sure there's lots of interesting things to say about that um Judith, thank you so much. That was great. Um, thank you for going through all those questions. We've got uh, we've got lots of material there, so hopefully yeah. it will have answered the queries of, of the public about the Vikings and uh, uh, and the Viking Age, and no doubt um, uh, brought up some more queries and questions that they will have. 
and uh, and I'm sure they will um, they will they will follow your books and research as a as I a consequence. So, but the, so, they were they were great questions. So thank you to the people who who bothered to send in questions. Good stuff. One final point: Have you? Uh, so I mentioned some of the books you've done. Have you? Mm-hmm. What's your what's your next research project? Are you working on anything I'm, interesting? Yes, I am working on a, a brand new, uh, fully annotated and. Uh, complete uh, translation of Orkneyinga Saga, the Saga of the Orkney Islanders. Ah, okay. Brilliant. That's. Uh, I think I've got a copy of the of a, a Penguin translation there, but I'm sure yours yeah, will well, be that, that's uh, a, much more interesting. Yes, mine will be better <laughs> in all <laughs> kinds of ways. <laughs> how how far away from fruition is that? Is uh, that a long-term it's project? Quite a, I've only really just started on it, so it'll be a, a two or three years. Okay, well, that's uh, that's something to look out for. Um, Brilliant. Well, thank you so much, uh, Professor Judith Jesh from Nottingham University. Thank you for your time. Thank you. That was Judith Jesh. If you enjoyed today's podcast, then please do drop us a line with ideas of topics and historians that you'd like us to include in the series. You can do that on our social media channels at historyextra.com. You can also find plenty more material on the Vikings at our website. Just head to historyextra.com forward slash period forward slash Viking. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. We'll be back tomorrow when I'll be speaking to Mark Bostrich about Florence Nightingale.